We're today starting part two of a a fairly brief sermon series that we've called Being Adam, Living as God's Peculiar People. What we said last week is that the word Adam, and many of us think of Adam and Eve, is in fact a Hebrew word that means humanity. And so when God creates Adam, the language here, the Hebrew language, is God creating humanity. Being Adam. What does it mean to be people who are created in the image of God? And we said last week that that, that central to being human beings, those created in God's image, is that we are relational people. We are meant to be in relationship with God and with each other. And that the, the downfall in the Garden of Eden, it comes at that moment when Adam and Eve place themselves at the center of the garden. Introducing this separation, dethroning, as it were, God. Introducing the separation relationship with their creator and with one another. The gospel, of course, is that in Jesus, we are reconciled to God and to each other. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That word humanity is sort of the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Adam. Humanity. God going back and recreating Adam, recreating humanity to be living in reconciled right relationships with our creator and with one another. And the tendency is to stop there, to say, well, that's good, that sounds nice, I want that. Until we examine our lives and find that though we may be claiming to be Christian people who are reconciled to God and to one another, in fact, many of us still have plenty of division, hostility, separation in our lives. So what gives? What's, the, separate, what, what's, the, what's the, the gap between our belief that God has and Jesus reconciled us and the way we actually experience life most of the time? And two things. One is that we carry this memory of separation. Human beings have known in our guts, in our bones, separation from God and from each other. And just because we submit our lives to Jesus doesn't mean that just disappears. But secondly, we live in a divisive, a hostile world. We pointed some of these things out last week, the ways that our world seeks to divide, to separate us from one another as well as from our God. And so though we confess, many of us, what Jesus has accomplished, we experience something else. And yet the Bible, the Bible still tells us that we are the people of God, that we are the reconciled people of God, that we have been reconciled to our Creator and to one another. And so what we see over and over again is Scripture's urging us to live into our identity. Say live into. Here's this thing that is true, and the Scriptures urge us to live into it. Live into who God says you are, the reconciled people of God. When we do this, when we do this, when we lean into our identity, we find that our relationships are transformed, which makes sense because like we said, to be human, to be Adam, to be God's new humanity is to be relational. 
So as we lean into this identity, our relationships are transformed. Last week we talked about how truth plays a central role in our relationships. Not what we believe, but the truth that we speak about ourselves, about one another, and about our world. We, we, we say that, that living into our identity causes us to be a peculiar people. Peculiar because we live in a world of divisiveness and separation. And so that as we live into who God says we are, we will find that we stick out, stand out, are odd, are peculiar. I want to add another peculiarity to the list today. If the first was truth, today I want us to look at hospitality. Say hospitality. It's not the most exciting topic for most of us. Would you agree? Be honest. There's like three of us in the room who get excited about hospitality. Yeah, and two of you just raised your hands, right? So there's a third that's in the closet still, but... It's not, a, it's not a particularly invigorating topic. What, what, what is hospitality? How would we define two quick scripture verses for you this morning? One from 1 Peter chapter 4, the second from Romans chapter 12. Very briefly, 1 Peter. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans chapter 12. Practice hospitality. To the point. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Practice hospitality. The language sounds the same to us, but it's a little bit different in some of the original language. See, in the first Peter passage, the language of hospitality is to one another. To those who confess Jesus with you. To those who you would consider a fellow Christian, a brother, a sister. Offer hospitality to another without grumbling. But then the Romans passage, practice hospitality, literally be translated, practice the love of strangers. So it's different. One you might consider sort of an in-house hospitality, a within-the-family hospitality. The second one has to do with those who we don't know who are different than us, who are not in relationship with. The Christian understanding of hospitality captures both of these. Hospitality within the family and a love of strangers. These are direct commandments. Practice hospitality. Show hospitality. So this is for more than the three of you who raised your hands. This is for all of us. So so I want to ask, what does it mean for us to be hospitable people? As those created in the image of God, as those called to be God's peculiar people, what does it mean for us to be hospitable as part of our identity? And I want to uh, quickly suggest to you, Four things that, is, that are required for us to live hospitable lives. The first is this. For us to be hospitable requires that we experience God's hospitality. God is hospitable. 
In fact, we might say that the way that we define the word comes from looking at God, at what God is like. Again, if we think of sort of a, an in-house, a within-the-family hospitality, and then a love of strangers, we see God creating the universe, creating this perfect, beautiful garden, and then welcoming Adam and Eve into it, the perfect host. Inviting them in, welcoming them, loving them, working alongside of them. This is hospitality towards friends, towards family members, towards co-laborers in mission. But God, of course, shows hospitality to those who have made themselves strangers to God. And we could turn up passage of this, of how God pursues those who are rebelling against God, of those who have sinned against God. But, but one, one example I hope will suffice this morning, and it comes from this same Garden of Eden story. Adam and Eve have experienced the consequence of their rebellion and their sin. They're sent from the garden by God. This is a, this is a, a very uh, bleak moment in the early chapters of Genesis. But notice this one verse, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, as Adam and Eve are being sent from the garden. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Here is this very tangible, earthy example of a God who has been sinned against, who has been rebelled against, of a humanity who has placed themselves in God's place at the center of things, now experiencing the consequences of their sin. And even then, in that moment, what is God doing? Protecting, loving, watching out for even these most basic needs, clothing them. God, in God's very nature, is hospitable. Have you experienced God's hospitality? This is the invitation that's inherent to the gospel. God is hospitable. It's not that God every once in a while kind of opens a little window of opportunity for you to be in reconciled relationships. It's that God in God's nature welcomes, invites, loves. Have you experienced that hospitality? This would be one of the ways for those of you who are not Christian to consider what it means to be a Christian. That there is a God who despite everything, despite all of our sin, all of our rebellion, despite everything that we have done or done against us, this God still welcomes, invites, and loves. Have you experienced God's hospitality, God's welcome? But you see, it's not just a past tense question, it's a present tense question. It's not just, have you in the past experienced it once? It's, are you still experiencing God's hospitality? Because God, again, doesn't just occasionally show hospitality, choose to be hospitable. It's that God is hospitable. You are in relationship with God, not because you welcome God. Not because you invited God. Now, let me me push this a little bit. I'm not trying to make any fun, but I might. A minute, okay? Some of us have, have, have heard this thing of inviting Jesus into my heart. Anybody? Anybody? 
There's something beautiful about that language, right? It's intimate. It's personal. But there's something really wrong about that, too. God invites us. God welcomes us. God is always the host. And we are the guests. God doesn't rely or depend on our hospitality. God extends an invitation to us, for us to accept. You see, we don't just experience the hospitality of God once at the beginning of our relationship with God. We experience it constantly as we are in relationship with God. Think about it this way. Um, If you invite someone uh, into your home as a guest. Maybe well, my wife and I, we have a, 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 an extra bed, and we have it so that we can have house guests into our home. Parents, friends, friends of friends. And we like that. We like hosting people. But, but, but if, if we invite somebody into our home, a guest, and after a day or two, they forget, that they are the guest. That's just weird, right? That's what you call overstaying your welcome or being delusional or something. Right? That doesn't work. I might say to you, make yourself at home, but I don't mean this is now your home. Act as if you are the host and I am the guest. But you see, this is often what we do, isn't it, with our relationship with God. We forget that we are the guest. We forget that our relationship, our life, our vibrancy, our future, our hope is all tied up in God's welcome of us. So in order for us to be hospitable people, we must know and experience God's hospitality on an ongoing basis. Now, how might we do this? It's easy to forget. Let me suggest that one of the ways comes in, in, in number two. How we experience, how we, how we become hospitable people is that we acknowledge our sin. If the first way is that we experience God's hospitality, the second way is that we acknowledge our sin. That sounds fun, right? We are not inherently hospitable. I don't care if you're an extrovert. I don't care if you like entertaining people. I don't care if you like putting on big dinner parties for people. You are not naturally hospitable. You know how I know? Because you have a limit. At some point, you're done being hospitable, right? You want your guest room back. You want your time back. You want your dining room table back. God is the only one who is naturally, inherently hospitable. This is why you and I need to be told to be hospitable by Peter and Paul doesn't come naturally to us. We might choose every once in a while to offer hospitality. But God is the only one who is hospitable. And see, when we don't acknowledge our sin, 
When we don't acknowledge our sin, when we acknowledge our complete dependency on God's grace, then our attempts to be hospitable get weird. Again, we put limits on people. I will be hospitable towards this person as long as fill in the blank. As long as they keep doing such and such. As long as they don't do that. As long as they don't cross that line. As long as they don't demand this from me. We have limits. Another way that, 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 that our hospitality gets weird when we lose touch with our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, is that we offer our hospitality from a place of power rather than from a place of humility. We see ourselves as, as sort of this gracious host. And I get to welcome you in to my life. I get to give you some of my time that you will benefit from it. Some of you are really good at giving, at being gracious with your time, your resources, at being hospitable people, at welcoming people in, at inviting people into your lives, loving and serving people, but you're horrible at receiving. Oh, it feels good to give. And you can do that well. But if you can't also receive, you've lost up with your own sinfulness and you are starting from a place of power rather than a place of humility. Are you with me? And so it's hard for you to receive hospitality It's hard for you to be served. You're keeping a list in your head that you're trying to even up so that you're not in anyone's debt from a place of power. But when we unflinchingly confess our sin on a regular basis, we find that we cannot place limits on our hospitality because Jesus doesn't limit his forgiveness of us. Every time I confess my sin, every time I'm reminded of my desperate need for the grace of God, I'm reminded God has placed no limits of his forgiveness on me. And so I can live as a hospitable person as I confess my sin. When we confess our sin regularly, we are relinquishing power. Knowing that our sin is forgiven through the all-powerful Son of God who for our salvation, the Bible says, made himself nothing. Taking on the nature of a servant. Our restored relationship with God comes through God giving up power so that we can be rescued. Every time that we confess our sin, every time we're reminded of our broken, desperate need for grace, we're invited to live more hospitable lives. Acknowledging our sin regularly allows allows me to show genuine hospitality to both stranger and friend. Here's the third thing. The third way that we can live as hospitable people, is to know who we are. To know what our identity is. There's a a good book that came out recently by 
a couple named Margaret and Dwight Peterson. And it's kind of mostly about marriage, but it is a very interesting chapter on hospitality. And they say this, uh, and I think we have the quote there, uh, hospitality does not do away with privacy or intimacy. On the contrary, hospitality requires boundaries. You cannot invite anyone in if there is no distinction between in and out. Adam and Eve, they begin to despise God's hospitality when they place themselves in God's place. When they begin to blur the lines in their own mind, defining who God is and who they are. They place themselves in God's place. The serpent says, did God really say that? Does God, is God really looking out for your good? Shouldn't you know as much as God knows? Aren't you better position to decide than God is. The lines between Adam and Eve and God begin to blur in their minds. They forget who they are. And they despise God's hospitality. Again, you can think of the house guest who overstays his welcome. He no longer defines himself as the guest, but as something else. And so you're no longer able to show hospitality to this person. It's only when you and I know who we really are that we are able to invite someone into our lives. I can only serve as a host when I know who I am and I know that I am inviting you in. You, someone who is different than me, someone who is other than me, I can invite you into my life. For the Christian, our identity is clearly defined and eternally secure. For the Christian, our identity is not in what we do. It's not in what we accomplish. It's not in how many tasks you crossed off the list this week. For the Christian, our identity doesn't come from our past, from what we've done, from our sin, from what we've done against us. For the Christian, our identity is eternally secure. Child of God. Son of God, daughter of God. Never, never taken away from us. There's nothing, Paul says, that can separate us from the love of God. Our identity is secure. And so it is from this place, knowing who we are, that we can offer genuine hospitality, that I can invite you into my life. Do you see? And then lastly, lastly, Participate in God's mission. Participate in God's mission. Being hospitable people, the people who, who the Bible calls us to be, requires that we participate in God's mission. We experience God's hospitality, we acknowledge our sin, we know who we are, and we participate in God's mission. You see, the tendency to limit hospitality to church potlucks or every once in a while having someone over for dinner, those are not bad things. But the tendency to limit hospitality to that mistakes the command to offer hospitality. It mistakes it as something that we can choose to do every once in a while. I can choose to be hospitable, to show hospitality, but to genuinely live hospitably in the very radical way 
demonstrated by Jesus, requires that we participate in God's mission. See, from the moment of creation, through our rebellious fall, into the calling of Abraham and Sarah, demonstrated vividly through the covenant with Israel, and pronounced eternally in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God's mission has always been to invite and to welcome humanity into restored relationship with their creator. Front to back, this has been God's mission. It's never been different. It's never been other. God's mission has always been to reclaim and restore, to welcome, to invite, to reconcile, to save. As with the first Adam, who was made to co-labor with God in the garden, God's new Adam, new humanity, is invited into an active participation in God's mission in this world. Active participation with God in his mission in his world. And so look, our loving hospitality towards one another, towards the person sitting, sitting next to you, towards the people in your community group, to your husband, to your wife, to your friend, that hospitality, despite all of the dysfunction in your life, despite all of the baggage, all of the issues, all of the sinfulness, the hospitality that we show to each other becomes a city on a hill. Becomes a a city on a hill, demonstrating the power of the gospel in a very fractured and divided world. This is how our hospitality places us in line with God's mission in the world. And not only that, but our fearless hospitality towards those who are strangers to us is the means through which God is showing the world that the kingdom of heaven has come near and that the gates of that kingdom have been thrown open wide by Jesus. We participate in the mission of God. And we become hospitable people. This this is supposed to be a sermon series about living as God's peculiar people. And especially about how that plays out in our relationships. So let me just be very clear. Without relationship, there is no hospitality. Hospitality always plays out in the context of relationships. Now, you say, well, what about the stranger, the love of the stranger? There's no relationship there, right? If you remember on Easter Sunday, we said that Jesus became a stranger for us so that we would no longer be strangers to God. But Jesus, when he emerged from the tomb, is at first not recognized by his closest followers. He becomes a stranger so that we are no longer strangers to God, which means that we no longer have access to that label stranger for anybody. Because we are no longer strangers for God. We no, cannot put the label to Jody and say, I don't have to think about you. I don't have to interact with you. I don't have to be involved with your life because you're a stranger. He is strange. That's true. I'm not going to lie to you. It's got, you know. But we all are. But you see, that label is no longer available to us. Yes, you may start out as a stranger to me, but I can't write you off as a stranger. My hospitality, compelled by Christ, invites me into a relationship. Is it a deep, long-lasting friendship? Maybe not. Probably not many times. But it is relationship. 
Without relationship, there is no hospitality for the Christian. There is no hospitality industry for the Christian. It's always in the context of relationship. So let me, let me, let me close by just showing kind of two ways in relationship that hospitality plays out. First, hospitality in the context of friendship. And second, within the context of strangers. And then we'll be done. Friends. We show hospitality to friends. And by friends, I'm using that pretty broadly. I just mean those who we are closest with. Could be a spouse. Could be a a long-time friend. Could be a roommate. Those who are closest to us. We are hospitable to our friends. Would you agree with me that there is a tendency to take granted those who are closest to us over time? Yes, would you? Okay, it's not just me. Good. There's this kind of weird human tendency that those who we maybe even love the most, have spent the most time with, these are the people who we, over the time, kind of take for granted. Right? I'm feeling like really, like, so it's just me? I'm the only one? Okay. Hospitality plays out in the context of those who we are closest with. We take for granted these people. We, we miss the utter miracle of these relationships. I mean, think about it. How is it possible? Think about those friends who you are closest with. How is it possible that you are still friends? Think about everything that should separate you, everything that should divide you. Think about your spouse. How are you still married? I'm not trying to be depressing here or anything, but let's be real, right? I mean, you, you'd be married for like six months, and you're like, boom, 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 boom. Here's all the reasons why this might not work. There's a handful of married people who are honest enough to go, mm-hmm. Right? This is, and this is not surprising, right? This is the world that we live in. We carry this memory of division, of separation, of hostility. This is the air that we breathe. And so we begin to miss sort of the utter miracle of these relationships. We take one another for granted, which is why I think Peter, when he's talking about hospitality within the church, what does he say? He says, offer hospitality without grumbling. <laughs> grumbling? Anybody know anything about grumbling? All right. Who do we grumble with? People we're the closest with, right? Who we can trust, who we can guard down with. We can just be ourselves. Peter says, nope, nope, nope. My, Maggie and I have been married uh, over 13 years. And um, I asked her permission to tell the story. And, uh, and, and one of the things that I've learned is that for my wife, it's very important that I ask her about her day. Uh, she, uh, Maggie has, has usually worked different jobs, and for her, it really matters that I say, how was your day? Right? Come home from our different work. And, and, and not just how was your day, but here's the key thing, follow-up questions. <laughs> Critical. Remembering details. Co-work names. 
asking about something she told me about. Her. Now, I know for some of you that seems so remedial, right? Like that's the kind of thing I should have learned when I was much younger than I am now. But I am a remedial person in many ways. And it has taken me many, many, is taking me, still taking me many years to remember that this matters to me. That, that for her, this isn't a hoop to jump through. That this is one of the ways that she feels connected to me. That she feels as if her work, her life, the details, the friendships, the frustrations matter to me, her husband. So, so there's this very real way where I can take her for granted by not asking this question. Or there's another way that I can show hospitality to her, welcoming her into my life, inviting her into my life, saying, how was your day? How, how, how did it actually go with that conversation that you were going to have? Oh, you had to work with that person. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. There's a way of taking one another for granted, those who we are closest to. And Peter says, no, 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 that, that's just not how it works for you. For those of you who are Christian people, that's, that's just not how you do it. So, so there's this uh, rather profound passage uh, in the Gospels where Jesus, uh, right before he's rested, he's celebrating the Last Supper. You remember this, Kim? Like he's in the Last Supper with his disciples. And in, in the Gospel of John, we see this additional piece where Jesus takes off his outer clothing and he puts a towel around his waist. You remember this, some of you? What does he do? He gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. Now, huge act of hospitality in this day, in this culture. Right? People wore sandals, nasty, dirty streets. You came, reclined at the table to eat, so your feet was like were out next to someone else's face, right? So washing feet, really important. Huge act of hospitality, but also seen as very demeaning. And so only a servant could be required to wash someone else's feet. You see? So Jesus, he, he puts a towel around him and washes his disciples' feet. And there's two surprises for us in this interaction. The first is that Jesus takes on the role of a servant. His disciples had seen him as this rabbi who they honored, this teacher, maybe even the Messiah. And in this moment, I think it becomes clear what Jesus' ministry is actually all about. It's not, it's not this lowly peasant from Galilee who raised through the ranks to this position of prominence and authority. No, it's the other way around. It's the Son of God come down from heaven, clothing himself in our weakness, in our flesh, to serve and to save us. Not what people were expecting. Here it is, the Son of God taking on the role of a servant in weakness and humility. But here's the second surprise. We see it in the text, John chapter 13, verses 12 through 15. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. The second surprise is that this isn't like a one-off thing that Jesus is doing. This isn't like a cute little sermon illustration. Oh my gosh, wasn't that so amazing when Jesus did that? This is an invitation to a way of life. Jesus says, if I did this, then this is now how you are to live. This is now the pattern of your life. 
If the Son of God released all power and authority and came to serve and to save by giving up his life, this is now how you are to live. Despite the tendency to grow apart in your friendships, despite the tendency to take one another for granted, to grumble, despite all of this, the picture, the image is this profound, loving hospitality. Maybe even a humiliating hospitality at times. When was the last time your friendships called you to this act of humiliating love? Think about those who you are closest with. When was the last time your friendship provoked, not taking for granted, but this sort of loving, sacrificial, humiliating service towards each other? Washing each other's feet. We are hospitable to our friends because in Jesus, God was hospitable to us. Jesus became a servant, washing not just our feet, but cleansing our souls all unrighteousness. And so we are now free to live not for ourselves, but for each other, to love and serve like our Savior. So is your marriage, is is it a constant negotiation between two stubborn individuals? Or have you been captured by the Son of God's incomprehensible hospitality so that you cannot help but follow his example as you serve your spouse? When a close friend neglects or ignores you, do you reciprocate? Do you hold a grudge? Or is the power of the one who fell to his knees under the weight of the cross, under the weight of your sin, so transforming you that your love and your service is not dependent on any temporary circumstances? Hospitality is to play out in the context of friendship. So maybe somebody asked this morning, what about, what about someone who's no longer acting like a friend? What about someone who I was in friendship with, but is no longer acting like a friend? A spouse who's no longer acting like a spouse, a friend. What, what then? Secondly, we show hospitality to strangers. I preached about this back in September, so let me be brief with this. In September, we talked about how hospitality, the love of strangers, included strangers, those we just don't know, included others, those who have made themselves strangers to us, and included the marginalized, who our society has made strangers. We love the stranger. But there's, a, there's another stranger. I think we can see this in the word estranged. There are strangers who used to be friends. And to whom we are now estranged. I ask the worship team, you guys can go ahead and come back on up. There is this sense, there's this constant pulling apart of any relationship. People change, people's politics change, people's opinions change, people's priorities change. I've heard different people reflecting on their marriages and saying, well, he's just a different person than I married. She's just a different person than I married. Or even on a close friendship, she's different than she was back in high school. Of course she is. 
people change, people grow, people develop. Sometimes in good ways, sometimes in not so good ways. People grow apart, people hide secrets from each other. And in the act of hiding from one another, we pull apart from the other, from the friend. And then maybe when that secret comes to light, it pushes us even farther apart. How could have you kept that from me? So there is this way that we can be estranged from one another. We know this. We've experienced this. And there is, I think, a prevailing wisdom that says, well, you, you give somebody a certain amount of chances, and then you, you, you kind of let them go. But again, as Christians, we don't have that option. There's a story in the book of Acts where Stephen is one of the early converts to Christianity. He's one of the servants and leaders in the early church. He's speaking out vocally about his He's arrested and this mob surrounds him and begins to stone him to death. And his, his last words in these circumstances, in Acts chapter 7, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Here is Stephen, utterly estranged from those around him. And yet still crying out for their forgiveness. Asking that God be merciful to them. Let me be very, very clear. I do not mean to say that there are no boundaries when it comes to hospitality. That there are no boundaries when it comes to showing love of strangers. Again, there can be no hospitality without boundaries, without knowing who we are, where I stop and where you start. So, so, so there's another example of this I want to share with you in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's writing to this early church. There is this horrible situation in this church where there's a, a case of, of incest that has happened in the church. And, and, and people are looking the other way. They're just tolerating it, acting like it's normal. And Paul's furious that this is happening. He writes to the church and he says, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Clear boundaries. This is not tolerated. This is destructive. This is evil. There's no room for this. You cast him out. You don't get to make him a stranger. You don't get to write him off. You don't get to forget about him. You don't get to stop praying for him. You don't get to stop praying for his restoration, his reconciliation, his repentance. Why? What does Paul say? So that so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So that even clear boundaries there's still hospitality shown even to our enemy, even towards this one who has done this evil, evil act. Yes, there is justice. Yes, there boundary. Yes, there is protection. There is always hospitality even to the stranger. And I I, I know that that for us can be a hard, heavy word. Straight up, some of us have experienced horrible, horrible things. Deeply painful abuse, manipulation. 
I don't say that tritely. I don't say that just to, to kind of make us feel good or to say something powerful. I get that what Paul is doing here is a painful move for many of us this morning. Painful move. One that we cannot take lightly. wife and I have some family friends who are very close to us. And uh, a couple years ago, their teenage son was just going through some stuff. He was coming home underage. He was having drinking, drug use, acting out in very destructive ways at home. And I remember we had this conversation with these friends of ours. They're just going, what do we do? What do we do? He's damaging himself. He's damaging us. We don't feel safe. What do we do? Clearly, there had to be boundaries, right? Clearly, there had to be limits for their safety, for their protection. But they could not envision a scenario where their son was no longer their son. He would always be their son. They could not envision a scenario where they would cast him into the category of stranger, someone we don't have to think about, someone we don't have to pray for, someone we don't love anymore. This is how we love those who are estranged, even in these very painful, painful places. This is, after all, what Jesus did for us making himself vulnerable, remaining hospitable to us, praying for our forgiveness even as we crucify him. Hospitality is a command, church. It's a command because it does not come natural to us. It is a command because we are selfish people. It's a command because we, are, we, 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 we turn in on ourselves to protect ourselves from getting hurt, from getting wounded. But mostly it's a command because it's a demonstration of the gospel to the world. This is what God has done for us. That the gates of heaven, that the gates of the kingdom of God have been thrown wide open because of God's hospitality for us. The Son of God taking on human flesh to wash our feet cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So how is hospitality playing out? Is hospitality present in your marriage, in your friendships, with your roommates? What about those who have been estranged to you? Have you written them off? Have you forgotten them? Are you praying for them? Seeking ways to be reconciled in appropriate ways. This is what we are to be marked for. This is what makes us a peculiar people. So Lord, ask that you continue to turn us into the people who you say that we are. Would you continue to form us into the women and the men who you've created us to be, who you've deemed us to be. Convict our hearts, Lord Jesus, again today of those places where we have withheld hospitality, turned in on our Encourage those of us who are actively now seeking to live hospitable lives in close relationships and those who are strange to us. Encourage us. Give us your strength. Give us your wisdom. Give us your power. God, would you allow this to be one of the ways, one of the ways where this church demonstrates visibly the beauty and the power 
of the gospel to our world? Would women and men see in our lives the possibility of being welcomed and embraced eternally by our God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.